All right, well, you can take your Bibles and open to Titus chapter 1 again this morning. And we're going to res- resume our study of elder qualifications. And in particular, we're going to take a closer look at this morning what elders should not be like. We're going to look at the negative side of the portrait, Titus chapter 1. Sadly, though, there are no shortage of examples today of what leaders should not look like. The church in America is plagued with pastors who fall far short of what God requires. And take, for example, Ted Haggard. His name sounds familiar, has a ring a bell. Haggard founded New Life Church in Colorado Springs. It grew from 20 people to 14,000 people with a $50 million campus in 22 years. He was a successful author and served as president of the National Association of Evangelicals from 2003 through 2006. And he was also involved in politics as he heavily supported the Colorado Amendment 43 which on the November 7th, 2006 ballot would ban gay marriage in Colorado. But things changed fast for Haggard. That same year, in response to support for Amendment 43, a male prostitute named Mike Jones came forward and accused Ted of paying him to engage in sexual acts for three years and also of buying crystal meth from him. And even though this guy was an unbeliever, Jones' Jones's motivation was to expose Haggard's hypocrisy. He saw Haggard trying so hard to ban gay marriage, but claimed he was apparently engaging in homosexuality behind closed doors. The sad part of the story is that this wasn't just a political ploy to try and sway votes. It was true. Haggard denied it at first, but eventually he confessed and admitted to all the allegations. He resigned and was removed from his position as pastor and also his position as president of the NAE. After his fall, Haggard left ministry, went into counseling, and he he went through a two-year period of, quote-unquote, quiet healing to rebuild his marriage and his life. And he claimed to repent, and I think everybody sincerely hopes that his repentance was genuine because Christ's blood can cover any sin, even to that magnitude. But there is one problem. Can you guess where Haggard is today? He's right back in ministry, pastoring a church. After his healing process in 2010, Haggard and his wife returned to Colorado Springs and they planted St. James Church, now has about 300 people. And it's a church for those humbled and broken because he feels that now he is much better able to minister to those who are humbled and broken because of his sin. He's now a much more compassionate minister. He himself posted on his website the following. He said, quote, I may not be qualified to be a pastor, but I know I am qualified to serve others in need. I've learned a great deal over the last three and a half years and and have developed a deep desire to help others in need. I do know much more than I did prior to my crisis in November of 2006. I know more about compassion, understanding, kindness, love, and peace I want to help people, end quote. Now, it's, it's great that Haggard wants to help people now. That's, that's a good thing. But what's the problem here? The problem is that even though he knows he's no longer qualified to, to be a pastor, a minister, that's exactly what he's doing. And don't get me wrong, fallen pastors are not all permanently disqualified. They can get back into ministry, and that's a good thing for them to be restored. But in his case, it's a no-brainer. And I get his reasoning. He feels that because of he has this personal experience with this serious sin, that he's better equipped to be a pastor now who can help people with similar struggles. I understand that logic. But there's just one problem with it in his situation, in his case. The problem is that he thinks that God cares. He thinks that God cares that he can now better relate to People, or that his personal experience with sin to that magnitude will make him more compassionate. And please don't get me wrong, God desperately wants compassionate ministers. But God also demands something else from his ministers as well. And that is holiness. Psalm 101 verse 6, He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. And do you know another word for blameless? It's above reproach. 
If God is not concerned that you have first-hand experience with sin, such that you can relate to sinners better, then granted, you know, no man is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We all have sin to deal with. But God still requires this basic love of holiness, being blameless, being above reproach for men who will stand in ministry. And Haggard's greatest problem is that he has failed to concern himself with God's qualifications for leadership. And that begs the question, well, what are God's qualifications for leadership then? I mean, what is it that, according to God, qualifies a man to shepherd God's flock? I'll tell you, it's not intelligence. It's not education or the number of degrees you have. It's not how funny you are, how entertaining you are, how, how easy to listen to you are. It's not how much money you have or how successful you are in the world's eyes. And it's certainly not how much sin you've experienced. So what is it? It's character. Godly character. This is what God requires for leadership in his church. In Titus chapter 1, Paul more precisely exposes us to God's qualification for qualifications for church leadership. If you want to know what God really requires from such men, Titus chapter 1 is where you need to turn. So if you haven't already, turn to Titus chapter 1. And we want to see what God demands of his leaders over his people. Who is qualified to serve as a pastor or or an elder? And what does this man look like? Well, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Let's read those together. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you had set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict So this is it. This is God's standard for elders, leaders in the church. Now right away what I want to do is I want to repeat myself from last week. I want to make the same point I made last week because it's absolutely essential that you get it first and foremost. And some people look at these verses on elder qualifications and they think that that's just for elders. They say to themselves, well, I'm not an elder, so this really isn't for me. This doesn't apply to me. I can take this at a distance. But that's wrong. Now, it's true, you may not be an elder on the church, on the churches of Crete, but here's the thing. There's only one standard for godliness. There's not this one separate standard over here that's just for elders, and then another standard over here that's for the rest of you. There's just one standard, and only one standard of godliness. It applies to all believers. What is the standard? It's Christ. Christ-likeness is the standard. What's the difference for elders? Well, it's simply that elders or church leaders, they're held to a much higher accountability to the one and only standard. They need to be at a certain level of spiritual maturity to fulfill their role and their calling. But everything that God wants of elders, he wants of you. Look at verse 8, for instance. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Do you think God wants those things from you as well? Of course. So the point I'm making is that as we continue to you know, slowly make our way through these verses and study these elder qualifications, you need to understand this is just what it looks like to be a godly and mature Christian. That's what this list is. That's what these qualifications are. This standard is for you. God wants the same from you. So as we go through these, be thinking of yourself. Be thinking, how does this apply to my life? How can I grow and measure myself by this standard. Well, last time we started verse 5. Verse 5 sets up the context. And what's going on here? Well, what's going on in Titus 1? Well, there's this guy named Titus, and he's been left on this island called Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and he's been given a job. Now, what's his job? 
His job is to set the churches straight, to straighten out the churches on the island there. It's like a spiritual chiropractor. He's, he's straightening them out. Primarily, he needs to straighten out their leadership. His job is to appoint elders in every city. Appoint elders. You might be wondering, well, what exactly is an elder? Who or, or what is an elder? Well, according to the Bible, elders are the leaders of, of the local church. They're the leaders of the local church. Every church should have elders who run the church on God's behalf. They're leaders. They are servants and they are shepherds. And Christ has especially entrusted to them the task of looking out for his flock, the church. And get into verse 7 a little bit. Their elders are referred to as overseers. And that, that's what they do. That's their job. They oversee the church. They look out for the church. And they're also called God's stewards. A steward was a house servant or a slave, really, who, who would be put in charge of the household. On behalf of his master, he would manage or, or run the household. And likewise, elders have been put in charge of running God's household, so to speak. And as you can imagine, God doesn't want just anybody for that job. He wants qualified, trustworthy, reliable Godly men. Now, going off this concept of being a steward, one time I was asked by someone to help them move. It happens a lot when you have a truck. If you have a truck, some of you out there may know, you get asked to help people. People ask you a lot to help them move. And so I found out for someone I was, I was going to be transporting for them some of their art collection. And we loaded into the back of my truck dozens and dozens of paintings. And we filled the truck up with, with paintings. And then I came to find out, at least what I heard, you know, roughly how much those paintings were worth altogether. And it was something like, I think, almost $500,000. I think. And never, regardless, never has my truck been worth so much. <laughs> and what this person was doing is they were entrusting to me to transport their, their valuable collection to their new house. And and for a brief time, I became the steward of that art collection, just for a while. And it was my job to, to look after it, to ensure it safely arrived at its destination. And never did I drive so carefully through the streets of Los Angeles. And see, elders or overseers, they're likewise stewards, stewards of God. And their task is to oversee something much more valuable than a $500,000 art collection. Their task is to oversee people, souls of God's people. And this task could not be more serious. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 20. You know, I hear this a lot. A lot of people want church just to be, you know, fun and games. Let's not, let's not be so serious. You know, let's, Let's not take it so seriously. Let's lighten up a little bit. I mean, church shouldn't be that serious. I and mean, we need to have some fun. And I'm not against having a good time. But here's the thing. You tell me. Let's read Acts chapter 20. And we'll listen to Paul's charge to the elders there as he's departing them in Ephesus. You tell me. How, how serious does this sound? Acts 20, 28 through 31. He charges the elders. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Elders are entrusted to shepherd the flock that Christ purchased with his own blood. And so, we're not talking fun and games here. It's a serious calling. It's a serious commission. It's a serious task. And this is why there are serious qualifications for elders. In verses 6 and 7 in Titus 1, you can turn back to Titus 1, 
In verses 6 and 7, we start seeing the qualifications for these men. And he begins with, first, an overall qualification. And what is that? It's being above reproach. Being above reproach. And last week we learned that doesn't mean you're sinless, because then no man could be an elder, and nobody would be qualified. Instead, being above reproach means your character and conduct are, are so sound that people can't bring against you any serious accusation of wrongdoing. It's another way of saying you have an outstanding reputation. You are literally above reproach. You cannot be reproached by your neighbor. You're free from any blame or disgrace that could diminish your authority, and you're free from any habitual or disqualifying sin. It's another way of saying your, your godliness cannot be discredited. And this is the most basic, the most fundamental requirement for the office of elder. I'll give you a quick example of what it does not look like to be above reproach. Another sad story. And just like just last year in 2010, there was yet another popular pastor named Eddie Long who was accused of four young men of sexual misconduct with them. And the four filed civil complaints against Long. So how do you think he responded? Did he, did he fight for his innocence? Did he clear his name and did he defend himself in court? No. He decided to settle the matter out of court in mediation. And these four young men were all paid large sums of money to never speak of their claims again. That's not being above reproach. These young men literally, they literally brought a reproach against his character and it apparently was so damaging and obviously truthful that he decided to bury it with money. But the point is, look, his reputation is forever lost and that is not the picture of being above reproach. And that's why this is the first, the fundamental requirement for elders is that they be above reproach. Getting into the rest of verses 6 through 9 in Titus 1, Paul delineates three categories of elder qualifications. Three categories here. There's family qualifications, there's character qualifications, and then there's doctrine qualifications. Last week, just to finish recap, we covered the family qualifications, and there's two. There were two in particular. First, an elder must be a godly husband, and then second, he must be a godly father. And the lesson we took away from this is that True spiritual leadership starts at home. That's the takeaway there. True spiritual leadership starts at home. You can't even step up to the plate of church leadership if you're not rightly leading at home. I mean, just imagine. Just imagine if that standard for leadership were applied to the corporate world. I mean, how many CEOs would be disqualified right away? I mean, just think of how many men sacrifice their families on the altar of their careers. And the point here is that in the church, it it cannot be this way. You must put your family first, and you must be the leader in the home that God calls you to be, first and foremost, before you worry about anything else. And so men, consider this lesson well. I mean, even if you never become an elder... This is for you. God wants this of you. It's on you. If your marriage is on the rocks, it's on you. I mean, you're, you're the man, aren't you? And you're the leader, right? It's on you and your leadership. And so you need to be diligent to love your wife, to sacrifice for her, to live with her in an understanding way, to shepherd her, to care for her. And then the best thing you can do for your families, for the church, for yourselves, for God, is to step up, get serious, and be the godly leaders in the home that God calls you to be. Well, now we come to verses 7 and 8. That was all kind of recap from last week. Now we get into verses 7 and 8 in Titus 1. And now we're going to get into this second category of elder qualifications. We covered last week the family qualifications. Now we're going to get into the character qualifications of an elder. The character qualifications. And in verses 7 and 8, there are 11 total. Verse 7, he gives five negative qualities to avoid. And then in verse 8, he gives six positive qualities 
to possess. And with the rest of our time this morning, we're going we're gonna to take it slow, dig deep, and carefully look at these five negative qualities to avoid. Five negative qualities to avoid. And like I said at the beginning, we want to see what not to look like today. You know, when you look in the mirror, you don't want to see verse 7 staring back at you. These are negative characteristics that all God's people should work steadfastly to avoid and to conquer. So from Titus 1, 7, I want to take us through now five negative qualities to avoid. That's what we're going to do. Five negative qualities to avoid. So the first one is being self-willed. Look at verse 7, being self-willed. He says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, first thing, not being self-willed. Now, what does it mean to be self-willed? Well, first off, being self-willed, that's not the same thing as being driven. You know, if some men and women weren't driven to accomplish their goals in history, great things would not happen. And take J. Hudson Taylor, for example, a great missionary. If he was not driven to travel thousands of miles the gospel would not have reached China at so early an age. Rather, to be self-willed is to be headstrong and independent to a fault. A self-willed man or woman is both arrogant and stubborn. They disregard the input of others, and they are inconsiderate of the feelings of others. It's like everyone else lives in their world. Take the star athlete, for example, like you know T.O. or LeBron James. In the past, they've given off this impression that you know this is their team, and everyone else is just on it. They're going to do what they want to do. They're going to go where they want to go, whether or not it's best for the team, so long as it's best for them. They're self-willed. Really, I think the best example is uh, good old Napoleon. You remember from history, it was his self-willed attitude that led to his downfall and ultimate defeat. 1811, Europe, he had conquered and was ruling almost all of modern-day Europe. I mean, he had it, except Russia. Russia lay to the east, untouched, and disregarding all advice and counsel to the contrary to invade the heartland of Russia. On June 23, 1812, Napoleon commenced his offensive campaign into Russia. So they marched east. The Russians retreated east. Further and further east they went, all the way to Moscow. The problem was that the harsh Russian winter was setting in, and the French were not prepared for that winter. But Napoleon continued to pay no attention to these warnings. And technically his army defeated the Russians at Moscow, but it was not a decisive victory. Russians were not giving in, they were not pulling back. And eventually the French were forced to return back to France, But this retreat cost Napoleon's army dearly. 400,000. 400,000 men began the invasion, and 40,000 men returned. This was the beginning of the end for the self-willed Napoleon. As the surrounding nations rose up against France by 1814, Napoleon's generals had had enough of his stubborn leadership. They mutinied against his dictatorship, and he was exiled to Elba, if you remember your history. But here's the point. Napoleon's stubborn leadership exemplifies what we're talking about here, being self-willed. One commentator writes, a self-willed person is one who, quote, obstinately maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights and is reckless of the rights, feelings, and interests of others, end quote. And the point here in Titus 1 is, for the leader in the church, this can't be you. This can't be you. God's leaders must not lead like this. They're not to be dictators or strong-willed, stubborn, and independent to a fault. Now, some of you may be thinking, a few of you, is this really such a bad thing, being self-willed? But after all, in the corporate world today, being self-willed is a virtue. Our world loves the, you know, the young guy who's, who's confident, daring, self-willed enough to climb to the top and dominate the com- competition like a, like a hand solo type of figure. 
I mean, these are the types of people who become CEOs. And so, who, I mean, do you really want a wimpy leader after all, right? I mean, so isn't being at least a little self-willed a good thing in leadership? Well, not according to God. God does not want elders taking leadership lessons from the world, but from Christ. For God's model of leadership, it's, it's so contrary to the world's model of leadership. Leadership, according to God, it's not about asserting yourselves over others, or intimidating them, or dominating them, or climbing to the top. It's not what it's about. To God, leadership is about one thing. It is primarily about one thing, one word. Do you know what it is? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 20. I will show you what God, what leadership is to God. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, you know the story I trust. James and John, they come up to Jesus and they ask him to sit at his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. That's their request. And if they wanted to lead, they want to be at the top. But notice, Jesus never tells them that their desire is wrong. Never rebukes them for that. I mean, if you want to be at the top, that's great. The question is, how are you going to get there? And it's not by manipulating or scheming or dominating others. There's one way. And what is it? It's serving. Look at Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. He's saying, look, we, we don't lead like that. It's not about exercising authority and just dominating people. What is it? Verse 26. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Christ modeled it for us. Leadership to God is one thing, service. And so take special note of this, all of you who lead or aim to lead in any capacity. Leadership is service. Husbands, what is leadership? Service, sacrificial service. Parents, mothers, fathers, what is leadership? Service. Elders, what is leadership? Service. And you see, this is why self willed people have no place in leading God's church. It's because they only care about their own interests. They're not going to serve other people unless there's something in it for them. And being self willed, they aren't God willed. And that's the problem. When you're controlled by self interest, you're not looking out for the interests of others. And such a self willed, arrogant, selfish man is unfit to lead God's church. And rather, the picture of leadership for all is to deny self and to serve others. And that's why this is the first negative quality to avoid. Avoid being self-willed. Avoid being self-willed. Secondly now, the second negative quality to avoid, being quick-tempered. Being quick-tempered. Look at verse 7 again. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. First, not self-willed. Secondly now, what does he say? Not quick-tempered. This doesn't need a ton of explanation. It's not describing the person who has the occasional outburst, but someone who's really prone to anger, one who has a really short fuse. You know, as God is slow to anger, so must be God's stewards. And it makes sense why an elder must be or must not be quick-tempered, because, you know, we, we know this. Anger only makes things worse. Tempers only makes things worse. 1894, the Baltimore, Oriole, Baltimore Orioles played Boston in a spring baseball game. And at one point, the Orioles' John McGraw got into an argument with the Boston third baseman. So what do you think happened next? Would cooler heads prevail, or would tempers flare? Yeah, you can guess. Tempers flared. 
And both men started to fight. And pretty soon the benches cleared and both teams started to fight one another. Then the fans got into it and the opposing fans started to fight one another. But then someone lit fire to the stands, which back then were made of wood. And the entire ballpark burned to the ground. All this because two men were quick-tempered. And I forgot to mention, that fire spread and burnt down 107 buildings in Boston. So like I said, you know, being short-tempered always takes things bad from, from bad to worse. And so elders, especially as leaders, must not be quick-tempered. But time and time again, elders are going to be thrust into these powder keg situations at church. And they're just, they're just waiting for a spark to explode. And the point, the point he's making here is that elders can't be that spark. You cannot be that spark. You need to have a long fuse. Proverbs 29, verse 22. An angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. And the application here to all of us, it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, just think about your relationships in life. Home, work, school, relatives. How do you respond to conflict? Let's say someone offends you. Or starts an argument with you. Or they just bug you. How do you respond? Anger or patience? Rage or compassion? Hatred or love? And just think of this. Think of all the times you offend God every day. Would you be happy if he decided to bring down the the fire and brimstone on you each and every time? Or are you thankful that God is, Exodus 34, 6, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness? Yeah, I think I'm pretty glad that God is slow to anger. I think I'm thankful for that one. So you probably want to take a page from God's book and likewise not be quick-tempered. James 1.20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And all of you, but elders especially, must remain calm, cool, collected in the face of conflict and promote peace amongst others. Now, it doesn't matter if the other person started the conflict. It doesn't matter if, if your spouse is over there yelling at you. No matter how people treat you, you need to, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, be patient with everybody. That's just a blanket command. Be patient with everybody. I know this can be a greater affliction for men. So to the husbands in the room, if this, if this is one that gets you, if this is nipping at your heels, double your efforts and really grow in this area to be a godly leader at home. Do not be a quick tempered. Let's move on to the third negative quality to avoid on our list now from Titus 1.7. Number three on our list, being addicted to wine. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, and the third on our list, not addicted to wine. This one is also pretty obvious what it means. The phrase literally means to be continually alongside or in the presence of wine. That doesn't mean you can't drink. But it does mean you can't drink any amount that would impair your judgment. And this is why drunkenness is such a big deal to God. And the same would easily apply to drug use. God doesn't want your thoughts or your actions or your words to be controlled by some substance. That's the point. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18. It's a short verse, but it's just I want you to see it you know, firsthand. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It's a very simple, clear prohibition for drinking there. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Paul very clearly says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Total contrast there. See, God wants his people, all of his people, but his leaders especially, to be filled with and controlled by the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 5.18 is teaching. 
What you're filled with controls you. Did you know that? What you're filled with controls you. Either you're filled with the Spirit, obeying the Spirit, or you're filled with wine, obeying the flesh. What you're filled with controls you. And you could say that alcohol thwarts the Spirit as the one controlling your actions and puts in charge your sinful flesh. Let's face it, I think we can agree. Nobody is holier when drunk. just doesn't happen. Drunkenness never brings out the best in people, only the worst. And you're like Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hyde, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And the only reason you can live righteously and please God in the first place is because of His transforming work in you through the Spirit. But when you drink, it's like your sinful flesh comes out and you become your old self again. Your, your flesh dominates. You have quenched the Spirit and it's just your flesh. And that's why the second you lose full control of your thoughts and actions due to alcohol or any substance, you've sinned. I used to get this question a lot. It comes a lot from high school or college-age Christians. But how do you really know when you're drunk? Well, the answer, according to Ephesians 5.18, it's the second you stop being 100% in control of your thoughts, actions, or words. It doesn't matter if you're still 90% in control. God doesn't want you there. He doesn't want you 10% controlled by your flesh and 90 by the Spirit. And of course, the best thing you can do is just not try and see how close to the edge you can get, but stay at a safe distance. But the point is that God's people must never be given over to drinking like this. This is one thing Scripture is abundantly clear on. 1 Peter 4, 3-5 reads, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Speaking of this, drunkenness is mentioned in nearly every list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty serious. God takes it pretty seriously. Drunkenness must not characterize the believer. In Titus 1.7, it must not characterize the leader. Listen to Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. When it comes to leaders in the church, this is important to God. So important that this, this qualification is it's included in the elder list in Titus 1. It's included in the elder list in 1 Timothy 3. Even in the deacon list in 1 Timothy 3. And the point is that leadership on any level, on any level in the church you must not be characterized by being given over to alcohol. Leader of God's church at any level must be clear-headed and in control of his thoughts and actions at all times if he is to lead people into righteousness. So not being addicted to wine. Fourth, fourth on our list from Titus 1.7. Fourth negative quality to avoid being pugnacious. Being pugnacious. Verse 7 again. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, and then fourth, not pugnacious. And that's a word you probably don't hear too often. We I know what it means, pugnacious. And as a side note, if you're ever wondering what a word means when you're studying the Bible, just check up a few other translations. And ESB here has pugnacious, most other translations have violent. And one even opts for the word bully. And a pugnacious person is one who settles disputes or conflicts by fighting, either physically or verbally. And sometimes we know it's the verbal cuts that leave the deepest wounds. But this should be obvious, but an elder must not be characterized by such aggression and abusive behavior. Like I said before, Elders are often going to be at the center of 
church conflict. And reacting abusively, either physically or, or verbally, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. And it's just going to make things worse. So they cannot be pugnacious. And you can see a connection here with the previous negative qualities in this verse. See, both a short temper and drunkenness, the ones we just covered, lead to being pugnacious or violent. In fact, both here and in First Timothy, Paul groups together drunkenness and this, this pugnaciousness of being violent. It's almost as if one comes with the other, and they pretty much do. There's no rocket science here. Studies show that, for, for instance, of all the homicide offenders, 86% were drinking at the time of the crime. The number goes to 60% for sexual offenders and 57% for marital violence. So it's pretty obvious. These go together. Now, a lot of men default to aggression in leading their wives. They think leadership is about taking your club, hitting your wife over the head, and just kind of dragging her to wherever you want her to go. At the end of the day, if you're not getting what you want, then you need to step up your aggression, get a little pugnacious. Guys, this is not godly leadership. You know that. If that's you, if this is getting to you, you need to repent, look to Christ, and grow in your leadership of your wife. It's not what it looks like. Look to Christ. How did Jesus lead? Was he pugnacious, aggressive? Was he a bully? No. Now, when Peter was confronted with conflict, he responded by cutting a guy's ear off. But Jesus always took the, the higher road in his leadership. He always rose, and he never resorted to evil to get his will done. And husbands, leaders, elders, you need to do the same. Instead of being pugnacious, God calls you to live peacefully with all. Romans 12, 17 through 21 Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So the leader and all God's people must not be pugnacious. Well, last on our list, let's finish it up here with the fifth negative quality to avoid, negative characteristic to avoid. Being fond of sordid gain. Being fond of sordid gain. Look at verse 7. Finish it up. For the overseer must, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, and lastly, not fond of sordid gain. And here we have the character quality of greed or of dishonest gain. NSB calls this sordid gain. Sordid, the word sordid just means like vile or filthy or dirty. So it's just talking about the person who they have a greedy desire to get money in all the wrong ways. It's like drunkenness. This is another vice that shows up in pretty much every list for leaders in the church. And Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 3.3 as being free from the love of money. No leader at any level in the church should be characterized by a love for money. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy 6. It's just a few pages to the left of Titus 1. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look at verse 10. First Timothy 6.10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Paul's not saying that money's evil in itself or bad. It's not. Money, money's not the problem itself. But here's the thing. Money has this strange power to control people and to distract them away from God. A lot of people think, you know, if they would just win the lottery, it would be such a blessing from God. If they were rich... But for a lot of people, that would not be a blessing. That would be a curse. I mean, just think. Do you think Satan would be happy making a person so rich 
that they don't need God anymore. Of course. For, for some people, when they start getting more money than they can handle, they start to rely on it. And pretty soon, they don't really need God anymore. And God becomes an afterthought to their ambition and their wealth. The lessons for pastors and elders here is they must never turn the ministry into a money-making venture. When a man gets infected by the love of money, it can affect his decisions, his leadership, his desires. And pastors who, who bend their teaching to fleece the flock are especially bad. Senator Chuck Grassley re- recently led a Senate Finance Committee, inv- Committee investigation into the financial dealings of six super-rich televangelists. Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Eddie Long, Joyce Meyer, and Randa and Polly White, Paula White. And basically, I don't think the government liked it too much that, you know, here are these churches, tax-exempt, non-profit, where you had these pastors who were all mega-millionaires who had fleets of Rolls Royces, multiple mansions, private jets. I don't think they liked that too much. You know, I can't judge the, the hearts of these people, but it does make you wonder, what does it look like to be above reproach when it comes to not being fond of sordid gain? You know, if the government feels the need to investigate you, probably not a good sign. I think Paul, he's so concerned with money here because the false teachers in his day, they likewise were also concerned with getting rich. That was their goal. I mean, just look down in the context, Titus 1, verse 10 and 11, if you're back in Titus. Just a few verses later, what does he say? Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. Same word. Even back then, people were using Christianity to get rich, to take advantage of people, to get their money. And all Christians, but leaders especially, can't be that way. They must live by Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Leaders in the church must choose, and they must serve God. Well, of the 11 character qualifications in Titus 1, the first five are negative, and they must be avoided. The overseer must not be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, or fond of sordid gain. And this is the standard. This is God's standard for elders, so you need to be praying for your elders according to this standard, right? You need to measure them by it, hold them accountable to it, but you need to be praying that God would keep your elders above reproach according to this standard. This should guide your prayers for them. And at the same time, you need to use the standard to measure yourself. All throughout the New Testament, it's very clear. God does not want any of his people to be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, or fond of sordid gain. The same is true for all of you. So this is your standard, even if you're not an elder. So how do you measure up to this standard? I mean, do you possess any of these negative qualities? Well, here on this list, do you need to put off and replace with godly characteristics? I, I would encourage you, maybe even highlight one or two that you struggle with. Examine yourself, pray, ask God to help you change, and then repent and, and turn away from these vices in your life. And if I can make one last point here, when you think about all of these vices, all five of them in this list, they all have to do with control. Did you, did you notice that? They all have to do with control. In order, they describe a person who is controlled by self, or controlled by emotions, or controlled by alcohol, or violence, or money. And that's an obvious problem. Any man controlled by these things is unfit to lead. For God's leader must be controlled by God. And if you are to lead people away from slavery to sin, 
You must model that same freedom. But those who are still enslaved and controlled by their sins, they must be barred from leadership. And you too. Same goes for you. You must not be controlled by these things. You need to be spirit-filled and not self-filled or emotions-filled or wine-filled or violence-filled or money-filled. That's the point here. Whatever you're filled with controls you. God wants you to be controlled by him. You need to be controlled by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. So to everyone here who has benefited from the death of Christ, consider your life. What controls you? Is it the things of the world or is it the things of God? And ensure that Christ controls you so that you too might no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do remember Christ who died, who rose for us, who conquered sin in our lives, that we might be free from sin. We pray now that Christ would indeed control us. Help us, Lord, as your people to be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit, to be directed by your will, that we too would not be characterized by these five negative qualities that we've learned this morning. Be with us, Lord. Be patient with us as we all of us fall short to various degrees, but we need you and we need your grace. So be gracious with us as we seek to follow and, and strive after you. But thank you for the cross and thank you for our Savior Christ who, who freed us from sin once for all. And may we live for him. In your name we pray. Amen.